Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that one of the biggest fears all humans have is called glossophobia. It's also known as fear of public speaking. And this is something that about 75% of people fear and is split evenly between men and women. But it turns out that there are some things you can do to fix that problem and actually to be good at it. And that's something that I actually had. The first time I gave a talk in front of a thousand people, I was maybe 24 years old. And I don't remember a word I said because uh, I was so terror, just full of terror. You guys wouldn't believe that. I've been on stage, you know, at like in front of tens of thousands of people, like at Tony Robbins type events. And, uh, and I don't have any fear anymore, but it was not always my natural state. And it doesn't have to be your state. And we're going to talk with an expert on that field, on fear of public speaking and like what it what it does for you. And a lot of people have asked me throughout the podcast, hey, uh, Dave, you know, I, I want to create a blog or I, I, I want to help influence people. So I thought I'd invite someone on who could help you do that for whatever you want to do in the world. So this isn't a podcast just for you know, entrepreneurs or people want to be uh, public experts or something like that, but just for people who want to communicate better, because one of the things that does lead you to being a higher performance human is being able to communicate well with other people. So we're going to dig deep with one of the world's top experts on that. And today's guest is none other than Clint Arthur. And Clint's an entrepreneur, a very well-known guy. He's a branding expert. He went to uh, the Wharton School of Business, which is uh, the only business school that doesn't have an integrated ethics program. And I say that because I also went to Wharton. Uh, so <laughs> I, I, I can only say that because I was like, guys, like, you know, m- maybe doing a case study on glyphosate, <laughs> like it's an unethical case study. We can't do that. But they didn't listen. Um, Clint's also a best-selling author. He's written about a dozen books. And his first one is What They Teach You at the Wharton Business School. Uh, and I also, I publish What They Don't Teach You at the Wharton Business School. So if you combine those two books, you have the sum of all knowledge. Okay, I didn't write that book, but I should. Uh, and Clint's latest book is called The Speaking Game, uh, Seven Figure Speaker Secrets Revealed. And I just, I've got to stress this to you. It doesn't matter if you want to be a major, big public speaker on stage. Knowing how to communicate will change your life. It'll change your relationships. It'll change your friendships. It'll change everything you do. And that's why this, I think, is a core skill to being a good friend, being a good member of your community, uh, whether it's in front of a classroom, uh, it's in front of a small group. It doesn't really matter. The stuff we're going to talk about applies to all of us. And everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Clint, welcome to the show today. Fantastic to be here, sir. Oh my goodness, I am so excited about this interview because, man, Wharton guy to Wharton guy, it's going to be <laughs> awesome. And you know, you were talking about glossophobia. One of my clients starred in a movie with Elvis Presley, and it was called Double Trouble, and she and her sister were twins in the movie and they were twins in real life too imagine that and she said to elvis when they were getting ready to do the first scene she said elvis i have 
to admit to you, I'm nervous. And he said, honey, every time I go on stage, I get them butterflies in my stomach. That just means you're alive. And I feel like if Elvis could get butterflies and, you know, Bruce Springsteen famously said he's going to quit performing if he ever stops getting butterflies in his stomach. If these kinds of major international celebrity performers can feel nervous about getting in front of an audience and doing their thing, then I believe anybody has a right to feel nerves, butterflies, performance anxiety, stage fright, whatever you want to call it. And you should really anticipate it and just expect that that could be a portion of your experience when you're presenting or speaking in front of an audience. So that's really the first step in becoming a great communicator is understanding that even Elvis had issues and it's cool. Clint, you didn't like me, you didn't always start out uh, this way. Uh, you spent a huge amount of time doing personal development work, uh, transformational work. Uh, you talk about how in 2008, you were with a shaman at a retreat who told you, you don't, you don't know it yet, but you're already dead. Uh, like, like you've, you've done some really deep kind of out there work. You've run a, a grass-fed butter company for five-star hotels for 17 years. Like, like you're, you're not just this entrepreneur or celebrity guy. That's like one aspect of you. I want to talk about the personal development work you did to be comfortable showing up the way you do in the world today. What did you do and why did you start doing it? Really, what didn't I do? <laughs> <laughs> I, really, I was, I was driving a taxi in Los Angeles and that came out of a shock in my personal life. Like after I graduated from Wharton, I went home to get the accolades for my parents. And what happens? They get into the biggest argument of all time. My dad storms out of the house. I turn to my mom and I said, you know, mom, the way he resents you all these years, the way you've been fighting constantly for decades. Have you been cheating on dad? And she's, she just sits there. And as she's sitting there, I'm thinking to myself, I can't believe I just asked my mother that question. What kind of smart ass kid asks his mom a question like that? And then I'm thinking, why ain't she answering the question? And then finally she looks at me in the eyes and says, he's not your real father. Your real father was a doctor at the fertility clinic we went to for six years and you look just like him. Whoa. <laughs> Imagine how you would feel if suddenly everything you thought you knew about who you were poof. And that was the beginning of my transformation because the first thing I did was I called the investment bank on the 87th floor of number one World Trade Center and said, no thanks guys, I really don't want to be an investment banker anymore. I'm moving out to Hollywood to start going on auditions and writing screenplays and trying to discover who am I. And I, you know, that's the big question in every work of art, every movie, every book is really about who are you, who am I? And it, that put me behind the wheel of a taxi. For six years, I drove a yellow cab in Los Angeles, and on New Year's Eve of the millennium, maybe you were getting Y2K money out of an ATM. I was driving a cab in LA. And in the back seat that night were these two guys who were MBA interns at Goldman Sachs, and I was overhearing their conversation. Did you hear about Mr. Carrera? They made him a partner right before the Goldman IPO. He cashed out a gazillion dollars. I turned around, I'm like, are you guys talking about Chris Carrera? They go, how do you know Mr. Carrera? Chris Carrera was a pledge in my fraternity. When I was the pledge master at <laughs> I used to make those little punks dance around the living room of the fraternity house with their tidy whities on top of their heads. And now this kid just cashed out a gazillion bucks. 
and I'm driving a cab on New Year's Eve of the millennium. I made $513 that night. And I went back to my little boat in Marine Del Rey, climbed into my bunk with all my clothes on under my heavy down comforter because it's freezing on the boat and there's no heat or electricity or water on the boat. And I'm thinking, where's Chris Carrera tonight? Partying at the Rainbow Room? How long can I keep throwing away my life like this? How am I going to get out of this? I mean, my resume, Dave, my resume at that point had one line item, yellow cab company. <laughs> oh my God. And, you know, my dad's friends were mercilessly making fun of the fact that I was the Wharton taxi driver. And I didn't know how I was going to do it. But that's the night I swore an oath that I was going to quit writing forever, that I was going to transform who I was and how I was showing up in this world so that I could try to dig myself out of this ditch. And if I could do that, then truly anything in the world is possible. And I did it with personal self-help work. The first thing I did was I took a, a class out of the learning annex catalog. And that evolved into another six month class called life transformation. And while I was in the life transformation class, I took the Sterling men's weekend. Do you know about that? No. Okay, that's 200 guys in a room for a weekend, an intense primal experience that gave me personal power again because, you know, 13 years of being told no by Hollywood, you suck, you're a jerk, you're, your writing is terrible, no one wants to hire you, you know, uh, people not calling you back. It, there's nothing, this was the big lesson of my 13 year odyssey following the Hollywood dream was who you are is way more important than what you actually do. Yep. Especially in Hollywood, where, you know, if you're not Arnold Schwarzenegger or Tom Cruise or whoever the flavor of the day is, you're nobody. You're really, really nobody. And if you're a taxi driver, you're below nobody. And I had to learn that lesson the hard way. But I started rebuilding who I was. And that Sterling Men's Weekend was majorly powerful. And then out of that, I went to Tony Robbins, Unleash the Power Within. I walked on fire with Tony Robbins himself standing right next to me. And that's how my life began to change. I got out of taxi driving, got into gourmet food, got into selling butter. And that all came out of my need. I was on the raw primal diet. Let, let's talk about that part of it for a minute. It, it's funny how uh, personal growth and transformation oftentimes includes uh, nutritional stuff. And <laughs> so, so you... Uh, you had, like me, I, I've had three knee surgeries. Um, I had arthritis in my knee since I was 14. And I I had my second one where they put a screw in. It was all screwed up. And, and like for 18 months, I worked out really hard. I was all like, I, I'm, I'm fit. I'm going to go do something dangerous. I'm going to go play laser tag. And I, like, I squatted, twisted, and blew my knee out again. And I was like, God, like I, I can't win. And that was part of my own my own path. It was about five years before you because you hit yours in 1999. And, and so but you went on this crazy ass diet. And by the way, I've, I've tried it too. Tell me about what you did and why you ended up doing raw butter because it's, it's kind of cool. I went to my chiropractor who also lived on a boat in Marine Del Rey. And he said, hey, you know, have you tried healing your body with raw nutrition? And I said, I don't know anything about that. And he hands me this book called We Want to Live Free from Disease by Alginus Vanderplanets. And, I, and I'm like, well, can I borrow this book? He goes, no, you have to buy it. It's 30 bucks. Okay. I bought the book for 30 bucks. I go home and I read the book. Amazing story. Amazing. And there's all these recipes about raw meat, raw milk, raw eggs, raw honey, and raw butter. 
And I call the chiropractor. I'm like, hey, man, everything I can get at the supermarket except for the raw butter, what are we supposed to do? He goes, do the best you can. I said, what do you mean do the best you can? He goes, well, you could do almond butter or coconut butter, but it's not the same. So at, I gave the book to my girlfriend. She read it and she's like, we need the butter. We need the butter. And I'm like, <laughs> but there is no butter. And, you know, sex is a powerful force, isn't it, Dave? And <laughs> and so I'm, I went on a quest to find raw butter. I called 152 farms, creameries, dairies, butter manufacturers, anything associated with milk. I was calling them around the country and everybody was slamming the phone down. What are you crazy? Raw butter? It's illegal. It's dangerous. And finally, I convinced some lady to make me 40 pounds of raw butter. And there were two conditions. I had to pay for it in advance and I had to have FedEx come and pick it up from her farm the same day it was ready because she didn't want it on her farm because she'd get in trouble. And one day I come back from the gym and there's this box on the back of my boat. And I'm like, what is that box? Because I had forgotten all about it. And I open it up and sure enough, there's raw butter in there. And I'm like, call up the, the chiropractor. I'm like, hey man, guess what? I got 40 pounds of raw butter on my boat. He goes, bring me some. So I bring him a pound of the raw butter and he puts his finger in it. Yep, that's raw butter, all right. What does he know? But I'm like, well, what am I going to do with this raw butter? He goes, well, you could call my friend who runs the raw milk distribution company here in L.A. And maybe he'd be interested in it. And I call him up and that became my first customer. And that was a famous thing. It was called Rossum in Venice. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And remember the blue butter at Rossum? That was mine for many, many, Whoa. many years. That was my butter. You know, Rossum, unfortunately, became a victim of bureaucratic, you know, tyranny, I believe, in in California. And they put them out of business. But that's how I got into the butter business. A couple months into that, I got a call from a chef in Chicago named Charlie Trotter. And he said, hey, man, I hear you got some great raw butter. And I said, yeah. He goes, well, I have a raw menu and I'd like to try it. That was in 2000, 2001. He was a client until he closed that restaurant in 2012. I had the table butter at Charlie Trotter's for 12 years. And that was the beginning of my entree into the butter industry. It has since evolved. Now, I, I no longer sell raw butter. I only sell pasteurized gourmet butter. And some of it is grass-fed. Some of it is not. I have found, interestingly enough, and I you know, I'll, I'll be interested in your take on this, that the lower the quality of the product that I've been selling in terms of butter, the more I'm able to penetrate. It's very fascinating. I thought having the best quality butter would be the best thing in the world. But unfortunately, I found like when I have regular butter, I can make more sales. It's very interesting. It's the same with, with grass-fed beef. You know, someone who's never had a good grass-fed ribeye and they're used to, you know, a corn fed, fattened on estrogen sort of thing. Like, oh, it's so soft and marbly. It's like, yeah, so are you, right? But, <laughs> but then you get into this, like, this different thing where you're like, oh, this meat has a flavor. And people who, who get used to how they feel when they eat grass-fed are like, oh, my God. Like, I love this. I wouldn't eat the other stuff. But it's about, like, the food high you get afterwards. It's really funny that you're taking me back to the raw butter thing. I was a raw vegan for a while. You know, and I, I've tried almost every diet out there, and I was a really dedicated raw vegan for probably about six months, and and you know I, I became really good at the, the chef stuff, giant bowls of 
greens and all this. And I started like cracking teeth and getting cold. And you know, my I wasn't I got thinner, but I didn't get healthier by a long shot. I started getting way more autoimmune problems. And eventually I'm like, this doesn't work. So I started doing raw primal stuff. So I would eat raw meat, I'd eat raw egg yolks, you know, raw raw anything, especially raw butter, which I could get at the farmer's market, you know, under the table transaction uh, in, uh, in the Bay area back then. And eating, eating that was really useful. The only reason I quit, I can tell you for people listening, if you do this, you got to do it safely, but you can actually, uh, it's very filling. Like an ounce of raw meat just fills you up in a very different way. If, if it's good quality meat, but the, the problem is I went to Tibet and Nepal and like, I'm not eating raw yak that's been hanging from a pole for like six months in the winds. Like, no. So it, since then, I, butter is still central to what I do because those fatty acids do something pretty incredible. And one more thing, if you take raw butter, which is a precious rare commodity and you put it in hot coffee, it's not raw anymore. Don't waste your raw butter in your coffee. Eat the raw butter, put it on food and put butter that is uh, that's pasteurized and grass fed in your bulletproof coffee. And then you're not wasting the, like the super premium raw stuff. Would you agree? I mean, you're, you're a butter expert. You've, you've been doing this at least as long as I have. Well, I believe that anything that occurs in natural human life, like without raising the temperature above what you would get on a hot day is still raw. So if your coffee is not more than 110 degrees, then yeah, then it's not ruining the rawness of the butter. But if your coffee is 168 degrees, then yeah, that's going to be yeah, that, taking that, away the raw, the amino acids, the alive elements of the butter. And especially what we're talking about here is is cultured butter, which means it's it's actually been fermented and it's got special bacteria in it and all, which is which is really cool. So so let's so, so you you went down this nutrition path, you went down personal uh, development path, you you did unleash the power within, uh, which is a powerful event, uh, and you you basically learned how to eat to turn off pain in your knees and and to basically turn your brain on all the way, and started a butter company and. Now you walk around wearing a bright pink tie on like every interview you ever do. You're wearing a bright pink shirt now and you have this big name. We're missing some pieces of the transition here before you tell us how to do it ourselves. It came out of the celebrity chef movement in Las Vegas. Most of my clients were in Vegas and all of a sudden all these celebrity chefs started coming in. Bobby Flay, Emeril, Gordon Ramsay, and... That guy who just closed his restaurants, that big redheaded guy. Um, oh, you know who I'm talking I about. Do. He just got in a lot of Me Too trouble. So, anyway, I wanted celebrity chefs. And I thought to myself, how am I going to get to be uh, the vendor for these celebrity chefs? And I talked to my coach about it, that guy from the life transformation thing. I took another class with him called Conversation Design. And he said, you have to go to New York and Las Vegas and get the top chefs to be your clients. And I said, who am I to get the top chefs in America to be my clients? He goes, I'll tell you who you are. You're Clint Arthur. You're the president of Five Star Butter Company. You sell the best butter on earth to the top restaurants and chefs in the world. And you want to come in and let them taste the best butter. He basically wrote me that script. And I was smart enough to execute that script and started making the calls and getting these meetings with these top chefs. And I wanted to add to my impact. I, I wanted to add to who I was. And I came up with this idea because I, I had, once I started making money, 
I met an amazing person named Allie. And Allie believed in me more than I even believed in myself. And 18 months after I met her, I asked her to become my wife. And even though we had issues, eventually I was able to convince her to do that. And we had a favorite TV show that we would watch all the time. It was called Iron Chef. Mm-hmm. And I called up the producers of Iron Chef America and I said, hey, guys, you have overlooked the most important ingredient of them all. It's called butter. <laughs> Every chef loves to hear that. And I should be the judge of battle butter. And they said, wow, that's interesting. Why don't you come in for a meeting? And I came in for a meeting and I convinced those guys to do battle butter on Iron Chef America. It was a battle between Kat Cora and a chef from Chicago named Corin Greveson. And I was the judge of Battle Butter with Isaac Mizrahi and Elizabeth Blau, who created all the restaurants at Bellagio and The Win and Encore. That was the beginning of this whole thing is like I talked my way into being the judge of Battle Butter. And man, more people saw me on that. Like I, it, that was like I still get people saying, oh, yeah, I saw you on Iron Chef. And that I took a frame out of that appearance and it had a picture of me. And the Iron Chef logo and my butter, and it said Clint Arthur, butter expert. And I took that frame grab <laughs> and I made it my business card. That opened a lot of doors, man, you know? And from then on, I started saying, hey, this is Clint Arthur, and I'm I'm the president of Five Star Butter Company. You might have seen me as the judge of Battle Butter on Iron Chef America, and I'd like to come into your kitchen and let you taste the best butter on earth. And what kind of chef in his right mind is going to say no to that? And that's when I really started to understand the power of using media and repurposing media assets and politely, correctly bragging about your media experiences to achieve high status positioning, expert authority, and becoming somebody in the eyes of customers and prospects. So Clint, did you ever come across Shep Gordon in your celebrity uh, chef stuff? I, I've heard the name Shep Gordon. So, so Shep was on the show and he's this amazing uh, music manager for you know, the rock and roll hall of fame oh. people, but also was one of the guys who really started the celebrity chef movement. And, and uh, a lot of the name you mentioned have worked with Shep and, and he's just this shockingly amazing human being. I loved interviewing him. And, uh, as I mentioned, you guys might've crossed paths. But I, I got to hand, hand it to you. Your little trick there of like taking a screen grab. Um, in the early days of Bulletproof, I, I was getting known for Bulletproof coffee. But I also, I, I've written a lot about nootropics and smart drugs and how I use them to get through business school and like fuel my career in Silicon Valley, specifically modafinil. And I got the attention with a blog post called Why You Are Suffering from a Modafinil Deficiency. A little in your face, right? And I... I wrote that and I got a call from Nightline and they actually came up to my house and filmed for a whole day with uh, uh, Dan Harris, actually, who now uh, runs uh, runs a meditation company called 10% Happier. But uh, he, they came up and they filmed me. And so I'm like on air as like this crazy Silicon Valley guy who took smart drugs to like help himself get through school and everything. So I took that screen grab and it was my Facebook profile for a long time. And like, like you said, I was kind of a blogging nobody. And I was a cloud computer or somebody, you know, I, I was a tech entrepreneur. Uh, and then all of a sudden that little hint, which I think uh, I can say came from your influence, uh, really helped people go, oh, wait, like this guy knows something about smart drugs. It turns out I really did. Uh, but it's one thing to know it. It's another thing to tell people that you know it without like saying, hey, everybody, look at me, like, you know, and just being an egotistical schmuck. 
And how do you avoid that line of being the ego-driven schmuck, hey, everybody look at me, self-promotion? Because um, when you do that, it's really repellent. How do you use your tool set to like promote and not just be a jerk about it? It's a very interesting question, and it's definitely something that I've been coming up against a lot lately because I've gotten to the point where I really have to be careful about it because I have so much credibility stacks. I've spoken at Harvard multiple times. I've spoken at West Point. I've spoken at NASDAQ. I've been on 100 television appearances, including the Today Show, and I have to be really careful when I start, quote, unquote, bragging on that stuff and I have to be really, really low key. But most people don't have that issue. Most people have the reverse issue in that they're too humble, they're too shy, they're not enough self-promotional in their presentations and marketing. And so I'd say probably for most of the listeners in your audience, that's not their problem. Their problem is going the other way and not letting people know what they can do to help them. And that's really the whole purpose of self-promotion is to, and the purpose of marketing, is to let people know how you can make their lives better and make the world a better place for them. So it's it's a very interesting question, and, and I've really come up against the fact that I have evolved as a person to the point where I really need to be careful and low-key about my bragging about what I've done. So, you know, you probably understand that very well. You said something really uh, powerful that you said, to tell people how you can help them. And and I think you might have answered your own question in your your thought process there as I listened to it. And it's because if you're saying that stuff in the service of the person you're talking to so that they understand that listening to you is worth their time, that's one set of behavior. And if you say it, hey, everybody, look at me, look at me, and, and what you're telling them is all about you without a what's in it for them, um, it, the message lands very, very differently. And uh, it, it is a fine line, you know, like if someone, if, you, if someone who doesn't know who you are, you walk in and they say, what do you do? Like, what do you, what do you tell them? What do I tell them? Yeah. And what's your answer? So, hey, hey, Clint, you're wearing a pink shirt. What do you do? You know, <laughs> <laughs> most of the time what I do is I help my clients raise their status in the eyes of their customers and prospects. That's mostly what I do. But I heard Jim Quick say a really smart thing about this one time. He goes, if I'm in an elevator and a person says, what do you do? I usually ask them, well, I do a lot of things. So tell me what you do so that I can more target my response to what, you know, that's going to be something appropriate that could be of interest to you. That's, that's a very interesting way to do it. Leave it to Jim quick to have like a ninja introduction move like that. Um, if you're a longtime listener, Jim's been on the show two or three times. He's, he's a great friend It trains shocking numbers of fortune 500 CEOs and most of Hollywood on how to remember stuff like, like truly unusual human being. So, um, that, that's a fantastic piece of advice. I, I'm actually going to start using that because you know, <laughs> uh, who really cares what I do if, if there's nothing in it for you. Right. Yeah. And I do okay. a lot of stuff, you know, I, I do lots and lots of stuff. I can help people with speaking. I can help them get on TV. I can arrange speaking events for them. I can train them. I could, I could get you butter. I could do all, I could build you a house. I, I do lots of things. So really, it's more important, like, what do you do? Why are you so motivated to help other people? Well, you know, the great Zig Ziglar says, if you can get anything you want, as long as you help enough people to get what they want. <laughs> <laughs> and that's true. That is true. But really, when you get into a groove in your life and you get good with something and you can really deliver results, it feels great to be able to be of true service to people and to be able to say, hey, look, I, I know that I can do this for you. There's not a doubt in my mind. I can achieve this result for you. And I'm 
particularly great at it and I would love to deliver it for you if you want it and if you can use it. And when someone appreciates you for the for your own specialness, for your own being a unique snowflake and they say, wow, what a great snowflake you are, that's a really great feeling to be appreciated. And I think that's why I want to help people with my own unique brand of being able to help them. It's a really personal development oriented question, but the the bottom line is is why does it uh, what why do you like doing it? it and I I go to what Dan Sullivan, a friend of both of ours, who's also been on the show, uh, so smart, <laughs> uh, super smart guy, and, and he said, "Why do you like something?" And at the end of the day, he goes, "There's a reason why you like something. You like what you like. Why do you like the color red instead of purple? I, I don't know. You, you like it." And so if it's what makes you happy and it's what you like, and, and there's some set of people, and I think most people actually, it actually like feels good to help other people. And, and if you acknowledge that, and if you're wired that way, then you sort of do it. And the more you do it, the better you feel. And it just kind of works. And it sounds like that's, that's your own, your own uh, motivation. But also you talked about being appreciated. So it's not just the act of helping. It's being acknowledged for helping. Is, is that kind of part of what pushes your buttons? One of the things I like most about my wife is that when I do stuff for her, she generally appreciates it. She'll recognize my efforts. And, you know, I think so much of this world is people who are stuck in jobs where they're just a cog in the wheel and they're just grinding away. And that's a huge problem with this world that we live in today is that we've siloed ourselves so much and there's so little interaction, especially today where people won't even answer their phone. They just prefer to get a text message because they don't want to communicate or interact. And when you can interact with another human being and they are recognizing you, well, that's what being a human being is all about as opposed to being a robot. Yeah, no one wants to be a robot, or at least those of us that do are probably not very happy about the whole situation. Hey, can we go back to Dan Sullivan for a second? Because he said one of the smartest things ever at a Genius Network meeting. And it was every quarter, like five of the top 10 things I learned in Genius were Dan Sullivanisms. He said, every quarter you need to do five things to make your customers and prospects think that you're fascinating. Thought that was a really, really super smart thing. And I, I honestly spent a lot of my time just really focusing on that one methodology of appearing to be fascinating in the eyes of customers and prospects by doing high status things, unusual things, and taking photos of those things and or people and putting them out there in my marketing. And I, I just want to say thank you, Dan Sullivan, for that super smart thing. Do you do that? Have you heard that? Uh, I've definitely heard that. And uh, I, I got to draw people's attention to the interview with Dan Sullivan. He's over 70 years old, planning to live to 156, I think. And just this on fire intellect, just just a, a, an amazing guy who's who's helped me in my own business as well. But I, I, I think I naturally, because I'm a professional biohacker and I'm interested in this, you know, living way longer than mother nature intended and hack my brain. And I, I think I just naturally do things. I didn't realize that they were fascinating. I just think they were odd and I wouldn't want to talk about them. And then when I decided I'm just going to like show up all the way, like, I'll just tell you what I'm doing. And if you think I'm a total, you know, total dork for doing it, that's fine too. But I'm at least going to talk about it because I think it's cool. And apparently some other people do too, but you got to be yourself, right? Yeah. Being yourself, but also putting it out there for the people to see. Yeah. I I didn't share it for a long time because I was like, it's just, you know, it's a little too weird, but no, it wasn't too weird. It was actually just uh, maybe some of it was, was early. 
Now you've you've also spent a lot of time, Clint, looking at the behaviors that get people to pay attention to your message. At first, it was butter, and and now it's it, it's you know how how do you go out and, and build your own brand? And you actually have a mathematical formula for how you book people, say on TV shows. Like not a lot of people think of that in terms of math. What's your formula for that? Like how does it work? <laughs> well, I spent many years studying with Brendan Burchard. And I heard him actually say 10 times before I got it, that if you want to be successful as an expert, you need to create a formula for how your followers, clients, customers, whatever you want to call them, can replicate your success. And it was the 10th time that I heard him say it. I was at a conference and I was actually the next speaker on the stage right after him. And I was sitting in the audience listening to him and he goes, you got to have the formula. And I got it. And I whipped off my name badge and I literally wrote out the formula. What were the things that I put in a proposal for a TV producer that got them to book me on their show and got my students booked on their shows? And I'm like, wow, it's like it's this and it's that 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 and it's that. And And I just wrote it out. And what I did was, okay, so the first part of the formula is hooks. Well, how many hooks should you have in a form in a proposal? I don't know. Well, that's an X. So I wrote H to the X. That's the first part of my formula. Plus celebrities. That's C. How many celebrities should be in a proposal? I don't know. That's X. So it's H to the X plus C to the X plus props. That's P. Plus D is demonstrations. Plus TA slash F, a takeaway or a formula. A lot of times they like to have bullet points. Like I've done 25 appearances on TV and ultimately this is what got me on the Today Show. And I'll, and I want to go back to like bragging and how to brag appropriately. <laughs> if you're, if you're bragging in a story, if bragging like involve, if, if a story involves some bragging, it's a lot cooler. So I got on the Today Show because I had done so many appearances on the topic of New Year's resolutions. And one day I get a call on my voicemail. Hey, Clint, this is Allie calling from the Today Show. And we were wondering if you might be available to uh, join us in studio on New Year's Eve. Please give me a call back on this number. We want to be talking about how to have a strong new year. And I got known for doing New Year's resolution segments. And part of my segment was the alive formula. A, awareness. This could be the last year of your life. L, let go of your mistakes. We've all made them. Don't beat yourself up. Just move forward and learn. I inspire yourself with great goals and dreams. V, visualize how to make them happen. And E, energize yourself. And my favorite way to get energy is by reading great quotes. My favorite quote, accept the challenges so that you can feel the exhilaration of victory. (laughs) And that's how you come alive. And that formula was very, very powerful. I want to thank Jonathan Sprinkles, my connection coach, my first platinum coaching mentor for actually delivering that formula to me. And that's oftentimes the value of having a great mentor is they will give you stuff that will take your career a long, long way. And Jonathan Sprinkles gave me that formula. And I, I took that formula all the way to the Today Show. So that's, that was my basic formula for how to get on TV. Hooks, H to the X plus C to the X plus P plus D plus TA slash F equals TV. Most of us aren't really taught to think in formulas, but I, I found 
as a computer science guy, I, I think about almost everything in an algorithmic thing because that's what like when you when you learn how to do that, that's just how the world works, um, and it helps you see systems and all. But it it turns out some of the leading people out there do it. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Dave Kalstein, um, who was a writer for uh, NCSI or NCIS LA and Quantico, was on stage at the Bulletproof Conference uh, a couple years ago. Uh, he's also like a, a Sayak Kali trained a knife fighter, like, like very, very high level. And I got to spend an afternoon with him. And, and, and I said, well, how does all this stuff work? He goes, well, I could teach you everything you need to know. You know, it's going to take about an hour. And he goes, here's the formula. Exactly like you're saying here, Clint. Because here's the formula for taking down someone based on the amount of time it's going to take them to drop from lack of blood. So you go, here, 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 here. He goes, there's a template. He goes, everything we do is based on a template. And same thing because when, when I'm writing a story, there's a template. And, and so it's this, this act of, of examining what you do to, to boil out its essence so that you can then make it repeatable for yourself and maybe even teach it to others uh, that I think sets apart people who, who end up standing out. Because when you have a formula, the amount of effort it takes and the amount of luck it takes goes down really dramatically. Do you agree with that assessment? A lot of times doing the work of creating a formula or writing a book makes you better at what you do. Yeah. And for me, you know, I, I think that at that point I had already been coaching people for about a year and the discipline of coaching people helped me to distill down my recipe for success into an exact formula that has been repeatable and has been powerful enough to help my students book themselves on more than 3,724 television appearances with ABC, NBC, CBS and Fox that I'm aware of so far. And it's really that discipline of doing the work and saying, okay, I want to create a formula. What does it take? And examining the self-examination involved in creating that formula or writing that book, it, it even makes you better at what you do. And so it is a very worthy endeavor. That, that's why I write. I, I write about a book every 12 to 14 months because it makes me do the work of organizing it, which just always pays me back because now I can think about it because of the work and writing formulas, writing books, and sometimes even speaking does that. Um, you, uh, I want to get into some specific things from your book, Speaking Game, that, that just came out. But before that, you talk about practical tips, and I'm a big fan of something called weasel words. And I've done a podcast about those a while back. But you know, things that if you say these, like, like they're always lies and they always make you weak. But you have a different things. You have five things you should never say if you want to make money. What are those five things? The first thing you should never say, and interestingly enough, this came out of a segment that I did for Lisa Sasevich. You know Lisa? Oh, she's a great friend, yeah. Love Lisa. Love, love, love Lisa. And she came to my celebrity launch pad and I called her up and I said, Lisa, I've been looking at your website and I think I've got a great segment for you. It's called five things single moms should never say if they want to make more money. And she goes, oh, I would never say that. I'm, I'm not interested in pursuing the single mom market. I never put myself out there as a single mom. I would never, ever say anything like that. And I'm like, oh man, I just blew it with my first big celebrity client. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm like thinking for like three seconds and I go, okay, how about three things moms should never say if they want to make more money? And she goes, hmm. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I, I could do that. That sounds great. And I'm like, okay, what's the first thing mom should never say if they want to make more money? The first thing you should never say if you want to make more money is let me think about it. Don't think about stuff. 
you know what you want and what you don't want. And when you say that you want to think about something, what that's doing is opening up a loop that needs to be closed later on. And really, what's the loop going to be closed to? It's going to be closed to no, because you already know you want to say no or else you would have said yes already. So don't say you want to think about it. Just either say yes or no and move on with your life. Be decisive. The second thing you should never say if you want to make more money is you should think about it. When you're a salesperson or when you're trying to get anyone to do anything, don't get them to think about it. Get them to make a decision. That's your job. And either they should say yes or no, but don't open up this loop again where you have to come back and close the loop in order to get the decision. It's just wasting everybody's time. Then the third thing you should never think about, uh, the third thing you should never say if you want to make more money is I woulda, coulda, shoulda. In life, you're going to win, you're going to lose, or you're going to draw. Sometimes you get all three at the same time. But don't beat yourself up about things that happen to you. Just learn from the experiences and try to move on. Now, those were Lisa's original three things that moms should never think about, should never say if they want to make more money. She did a few, she did, she came to Celebrity Launchpad. She was invited to do seven shows. Interestingly enough, one of the invitations came from a TV show in San Francisco that had booked her to go on TV on June 16th or 17th with three things moms should never say if they want to make more money. And then all of a sudden they called her up and they're like, Lisa, we can't have you on June 16th for talking about moms. It's Father's Day. And she texts me, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I'm like, well, just change it to three things dads should never say if they want to make more money. And for some reason that didn't work out for her. And she stopped doing these local TV appearances. And I think that was a, a mistake. I think everybody should really cut their teeth on local TV and learn how to deliver a message and be a great guest on television because it's not as easy as you think it is God, to no. go on TV. <laughs> it's work. You need to be trained to do that well. Yeah. You got to have the experience to really do it. And and a few years went by. And finally, I wrote my book, The Speaking Game. And I wanted to go out there and promote The Speaking Game. And I dusted off Lisa's segment of three things moms should never say if they want to make more money. And I turned it into five things you should never say, not moms, but you should never say if you want to make more money. And man, I have taken that segment all the way to Fox Los Angeles, the number two market in America. And I'm sure you know, man, Fox LA is Hollywood. It's the big oh, yeah. time. It's really the big time. I took that little segment of Lisa's all the way to the top of Hollywood. And so the fourth thing you should never say if you want to make more money is let me give you a discount because really ballers don't give discounts. People who make a lot of money know the value of their stuff and they know that they're worth it. And they also know a very interesting fact, which is it's not in the client's best interest to give them a discount. Because people who get discounts on stuff discount the value that they get from that stuff. When you pay full price for something, you really appreciate it. For example, my Rolex watch that I bought at a retail store in Century City in Los Angeles. Man, I wear this thing every single day and I paid a lot of money for it and I love it. I, I just – I don't know anything that gives me as much value as this Rolex watch because how much I paid for it at the time in my life when it was really a stretch for me to go for this. And I really appreciate the fact that I, that I was able to step up and make that happen for me. And I did not get a discount. 
and I get a lot of value out of it. And then the fifth thing that you should never say if you want to make more money is, can you give me a discount? That's counterintuitive, right? Yeah, it is. And, and that, and that all comes back from the fact that if a baller wants the Rolls Royce, they walk into the dealership and they say, I want that one, send it over to my house. They don't even talk about the price. They know that they're worth, they get whatever they want. They're worth getting whatever they want. And it really doesn't matter what the price is because they can afford it. And it really comes down to that attitude that, Hey, I don't need to haggle on price. I can just get anything I want. And when you feel like you can have anything that you want, that you deserve anything that you want, that's when the floodgates of money really open up and you can really make all the money. So you're talking about that more from an energetic perspective, because I, I guarantee you when you were driving a taxi, uh, you you didn't walk around like that. But a lot of people listening, like they don't have the money to walk into, you know, a Toyota dealer and say, give me whatever I want, you know, with all the options. Like it's it, it, it seems like being able to get a discount might be a good thing. Like what, what's the mindset shift that happens when you just say, I'm not going to do that? I have to go back to what I learned from my favorite professor in the entrepreneurship department at Wharton, Miles Bass, rest in peace, love that guy. He said, there's way better things to negotiate for in a deal than price. Price is the last thing you ever wanna negotiate. You wanna negotiate terms, you wanna negotiate additional benefits. There's so many more powerful things. And for some reason, this money thing, you know, you, you take a dollar out of a person's pocket and they really resent it. And what I like to do when I'm on TV, uh, it, and I'll do it even right now, is, do you have any cash? Thank you, sweetie. Oh, my, hand, my wife hands me a $100 bill. So when you have the $100 bill, and you just take a little piece of it away. Oh, federal crime, unless you huh? take it back together. Yeah, exactly. This doesn't quite work so well anymore. After you tear a third of it off, right? Right. In fact, you try to pay for anything with just this piece right here. People are going to say no, even though it's most of the hundred, even though I've only only negotiated away a little piece of it, it still renders the entire thing ineffective. And that's what happens when you're negotiating price. It's a it's a weird psychological thing that people really, really resent when you take away three dollars an hour off their rate or $100 off the price of what they're selling you, they're not gonna deliver you the same quality of service, they're not gonna give you the same kind of delivery experience, they're not gonna give you as good a version. Like I was in a restaurant the other day at happy hour, they have $1 oysters at happy hour. And I've been to that restaurant many times for $1 oysters at happy hour, and the other day I missed the happy hour and they were $3 oysters. I gotta tell you something, man, those oysters, for $3 a piece, we're way better than the ones you get for the $1. <laughs> they serve you different oysters. Oh, no kidding. That I'm, I believe. I'm, yeah, they serve you the rejects for $1. They serve you the good oysters for $3. Doesn't it make sense? I, I can tell you, never go to an all-you-can-eat sushi place. Like, it, it, you're, just, you're not going to like the way you feel that night. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You know, ever since seeing those videos on Facebook about the worms in sushi and in salmon, I haven't been eating a lot of sushi. I yeah. don't eat any since then. You, you gotta, you're, you're the guy who used to eat raw meat all the time. That's too funny. I, I know. I know. I, know. <laughs> I, they, I assume they freeze the fish the way they're supposed to to kill that stuff. I hope so. Now... 
you also talk about five things people should say to be more successful and make more money and just be happier. What are those five things? Five things you should always say if you want to make more money. The first thing you should always say is, I'm the only one in the world who can do this for you. That's, That's a really key thing to say. If you can't say that, if you don't have unique positioning in the world, then you are going to have a hard time scraping up crumbs left over by everybody else. It's sad but true. It's really the only thing that kept me in business, in the butter business, is that I was selling the only organic portion-controlled butter pieces. And there was nobody else. If you wanted to have butter that actually tasted good, because unfortunately in the portion-controlled butter market, there was only melted butter. They would melt it into forms. And you can tell a piece of butter has been melted if when you look at it, it has a shiny surface. If it's rough or dull, then it probably was not melted. And that is a higher quality piece of butter. And I was the only one who wasn't melting the butter for many, 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 many years. And that enabled me to have unique positioning in the world of butter. So that kept me alive as an entrepreneur. Now, I've also learned that really an even better way to have unique positioning is to have celebrity status. If you want to walk on fire with Tony Robbins, doing it with some shaman in the middle of the Arizona desert is not going to accomplish the same feeling for you. There's only one Tony Robbins that you can go to to have that experience. And that's why Tony Robbins makes more money than any other seminar leader in the world is because he has created this perception in the seminar industry, at least, that he is a celebrity. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a great way to get the unique positioning. And that's a really powerful way to be able to say, hey, I'm the only one who can do this for you. The second thing you should always say if you want to make more money is your full name. This is a very subtle thing. I've met a lot of celebrities in my life. And every time I meet one, they introduce themselves with their full name. Even people who are not household names, like for example, when I was at the St. Regis in Puerto Rico with my wife, we were walking down the beach and along coming the other way is this old guy with a hot young blonde wife and two little white dogs walking on the beach towards us. And I'm like, well, this guy must be somebody. So we start talking to them and I stick out my hand to shake hands with the guy and he goes, I'm Donald Pliner, shoe guy. Every woman knows who I'm talking about because he is a celebrity shoemaker. And he introduced himself with his full name. Then another interesting story like that, I met Daniel Baldwin. I was at Two Bunch Palms Resort in Rancho Mirage. You know, ever been there? Yep. Okay. That's the, the one from the movie The Player where they were soaking in the mud. And I'm standing at the desk checking out one day. And I look to my right and there's this guy who looks like a chubbier, more tattoo covered version of Alec Baldwin. So I start chatting him up and I stick out my hand to shake and he goes, how you doing? I'm Daniel Baldwin. Every time a celebrity is going to say their full name. There's a lot of psychology that's involved in that. And this works great even if you are just calling up a restaurant to get a reservation. If you say your full name, the person is going to think to themselves, well, I don't know who that is, but they must be somebody since they said their name as if I should know it. It's very, it, it really works great. And I always say, say your full name. You've got to think you're somebody before other people are going to think you're somebody. And saying your full name is a great step to doing that. The third thing you should always say if you want to make more money is give me the money. 
People cannot read your mind. If you want your kid to clean their room, tell them, clean your room and you'll get a lot better results than if you just think about it. And it's the same thing about money. If you want people to buy your stuff, you have to ask them for the order and you'll get more orders. If you want them to pay you for what you want to sell, you have to ask them, would you like to buy what I have to sell? And that will increase the amount of money that you make. The fourth thing you should always say if you want to make more money is I don't discount but I will be happy to give you this bonus. Now, how does that work in real life? Let, let's say that you are an auto mechanic like my good friend and client, Dave Striegel at Elizabeth Auto Care outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and I, I mentioned his name because he's one of my most successful clients. He's come to my celebrity launch pad and he used his 13 TV appearances, including going on Fox Los Angeles three times to propel him onto the main stage at the Napa Auto Parts Convention in Las Vegas in front of 13,000 prime prospects for his auto mechanic coaching business. And if you're a mechanic like Dave and somebody says, $500 for a brake job, what are you, out of your mind? You gotta cut me a little slack here. I would advise Dave to say, well, I'm sorry, sir, the brake job is gonna cost $500, but I'd be happy to detail your car for you and have it looking shiny and new for you when you come and pick it up. That's a $100 bonus that I'm giving you and I'm happy to do that for you at no charge. That's way better than cutting your prices. And then the fifth thing you should always say if you wanna make more money is, I'm very grateful for whatever you're talking about. I'm very grateful to have a person in my life like my wife, Allie, who believes in me more than I even believed in myself, who shares my goals and dreams and aspirations and has supported me and pushed me as far as I've gotten to be and who's helped me to live a lifestyle that neither of us could have ever imagined. I'm, I'm grateful for my clients. I'm grateful for my ability to write. I'm grateful for my mentors, like even going way back to high school. You know, I went to Stuyvesant High School and I had the great privilege to study creative writing with Frank McCourt the author of Angela's Ashes. Have you read that book? I haven't, but I've heard of it. The most beautiful piece of prose in the English language, Dave. You've got to wow. check it out. All right. Angela's Ashes, about his impoverished childhood in, in Ireland. What, what an experience to have as a kid, courtesy of the New York City public school system, to be able to be at the feet of somebody who would become a Pulitzer Prize winning author like that. I, I, I've been so fortunate and lucky, and I'm even grateful to my father who I've never met. I'm, I'm grateful to the man who raised me and put me through the Wharton Business School. He really gave me every opportunity and, and supported everything. I never thought about money. Money was never an issue. I didn't know we were just lower middle class living in uh, subsidized housing. That didn't go into my mind when I was growing up because we never wanted for anything. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm also grateful to the father I've never met because he allowed me to become my own man. He gave me life and he created uh, a, a whole interesting chapter for me that I, I don't even understand yet. And it's created a whole theme for me in my life about having the love of fathers. I'm, I'm just a very lucky guy and I'm grateful for that. And if you express gratitude in your life, I think it will not only help you to make more money, but it'll also help you to appreciate what you have and the life that you're living right now. It's so, so beautifully put. 
I, I love it that you built that into both financial success, but also just happiness that it's, it's powerful stuff. And if everyone listening, if you just come away from, with, from, from this whole interview with one thing, pick that one up. Uh, you, you also talk about some other stuff that is probably, well, it's visible, but it's probably, it looks unconscious for most people. And in your books, in your writing, uh, and in speaking game, even you talk to a certain extent about what you can do with, with your voice, with your language, with your costume, with your setting. How do you think about setting those things up when you're going to communicate whatever it is you want to communicate? Being a speaker is something that looks really easy. It's like going on TV. It looks easy because you've seen a lot of people speak on stages. How hard could it be? I talk every single day. But being really successful at something and making a lot of money from something is always very different than the way amateurs do it. And when you are going on television you have to examine all of these things under a microscope because you only have a few minutes, usually two to four minutes on a network television interview if they're going to even feature you. So you have to really pay attention to all of the elements. And that's where I really began to understand how to be powerful and effective as a presenter because of the experiences that I had on TV. I talked about Jonathan Sprinkles earlier. He said to me, Clint, where do you speak? And at that point, I had only been on television. I said, I usually speak on TV. He goes, well, that's a great place to speak. But what I found is that when you use the mathematical formula for how to get on TV, what it really is, is a mathematical formula for how to give a great presentation. And that was my evolution into, well, I'm actually more than just a coach for people on how to get on television. I'm actually coaching them on how to be great presenters. And then I said, hey, I should write a book about speaking because I have an approach to making money as a speaker that according to Joel Weldon, and I know you know Joel very well, one of my great mentors, super smart guy, and interestingly enough, I, you tell me if you think I'm off base, one of the most likable people in the world. Uh, very very famous uh, speaking coach and just ebullient, effusive, happy guy who just nails everything he does, whether it's in front of five people or 5,000 people. It just never misses a beat. He critiques everybody's speeches at Genius Network. And the most amazing thing is he's a guy, as soon as he tells you all the things you did wrong, you love him even more. <laughs> <laughs> and usually people don't like people who tell them what they did wrong, but he's so great at speaking. And when I was putting together this book, I sent him a copy of it. And, you know, he's like, you know, Clint, you have done things in speaking to make money that I've never seen anybody else do in my 40 plus years as a professional speaker. And that's, that's when I really started appreciating my own unique approach to public speaking and having fun and making money when you speak. And all these different things that you would think about when you go on TV also apply directly for when you're speaking on a stage. So for example, costume. I'm the only one who talks about costume. I was having a conversation with a host of an event the other day in Las Vegas, and I was talking about her choice to wear a certain dress of a certain shortness on the leg. And I said, you know, it's a very interesting costume choice that you have there. She never thought of that dress as a costume. That was just a dress that she pulled out of her closet. But when you're a performer in front of an audience, Anything you're wearing on your body is your costume. When you're in a movie or television show, they send you to wardrobe to get a costume to wear. And it's the same thing anytime you're on, on stage 
And the word stage can be interpreted loosely to mean anytime you're in front of anybody, you're wearing a costume. So I've created a particular costume that I wear all the time. And it is what I call my celebrity businessman costume. It's a dark blue suit, a white shirt, and a, and a neon color shiny pink tie with no pattern on it because I don't want to distract people. I just want them to focus on me. The neon attracts their eye. <laughs> I wear a neon tie to not distract people. I, I, I think I follow you there. <laughs> well, I I don't have pattern on the tie. I got it. Okay. The, the neon just attracts their eye to me. Like when I was a little kid growing up, I had many jobs. My first job was working on this corner of 23rd Street and Lexington Avenue handing out flyers on the street corners for a dollar an hour when I was 10 years old. Then a couple of years later, I talked to the guys who owned Barry's Record Store on 23rd Street and Park Avenue to let me work in their store. And I remember Barry's Record Store had strobe lights in the window flashing. That's a technique that they use in New York City all the time. You attract the person's eye with a flashing light and then they're looking in your window. Well, that's exactly the same idea with the neon colors that people often wear on television. The neon is to attract your eye to you on the TV screen because when you're on TV, that neon tie is a neon light shining in the person's eye. But I don't put a pattern on. I never have any patterns because the pattern would distract. Got so, it. These are choices about costume and, and all of that has to go into what you're doing as a speaker. Like for example, setting, I really learned about setting by attending one of Donald Trump's rallies. Please don't interpret this as a political statement. It's not in any way, but I really studied the rallies of Donald Trump and how they contributed to his, his success as a candidate. And when you went to a Donald Trump rally, it looked like you were at a rally for a presidential candidate who was going to win. There was all this red, white, and blue bunting all over the place. There were giant American flags hanging on the wall as a backdrop. There were other flags on poles. There were state flags and, and the U.S. flag. There were all these signs that said women for Trump, Latinos for Trump, the silent majority for Trump. And all those signs were distributed by the campaign to the audience so that there would be appropriate props in the audience as part of the scenario, all of the setting that goes into a presentation or a speech has to be carefully analyzed and designed in order to achieve the maximum impact and the effect that you wanna create on your audience so that you can achieve the influence and impact you want in your life. When you really wanna get impact and influence, you really have to start studying this stuff carefully. Now, for most of us listening to this, that stuff just seems like it just happens. And I, I know from experience, I, having been on you know, Dr. Oz and you know, lots of TV shows as well, and and uh, just having worked with enough people like that, I had no idea coming from the tech world where, yeah, I was a VP of marketing and I'd, I'd make a trade show booth for you know computer software, uh, which, which is like 1% of what goes into a, a lot of the type of things you're talking about. But it is done consciously and it's done consciously to make people like us who see it uh, think and feel a certain way. But the the people who are very good at, at selling or very good at, at being entrepreneurs or just being known they're thinking about these details or they have people who think about these details for them. Uh, and, and it's it's a standard and routine thing, but it's something that they don't teach you this. Even like at Wharton, they didn't teach me this. Uh, but it, it, this is actually how the world works for ultra successful people. And I think it's kind of cool that you're just putting it out there 
uh, for people listening to this. So A, you know you're being played by that kind of stuff. And it's not an unethical play, but it, it is done consciously. And also, if you're working on your career or you know, you're, you, you want to you know, be really good in a play or wh- whatever you're going to do. Like all this stuff is, is part of the equation is part of the formula and being aware of it uh, means that it's part of your environment and your environment does control your mind. It controls y- your whole body. So if you take control of that stuff, you can, you can feel better, you can perform better, but the people who see what you do, you might have a bigger impact on them. Uh, if you, if you get at least most of this, at least mostly right, it doesn't have to be perfect. I heard a great quote by John Wooden. He said, it's the stuff you learn after you know everything that really makes all the difference. (laughs) And you're right. They don't teach any of this stuff at the Wharton Business School. I can't believe that they don't teach you how important it is to create a powerful personal brand. Where is that class? I can't believe they don't teach you about speaking in front of audiences. Where was that class? These are things that are really, really important. I can't believe that they don't teach you the elements of successful costume for business success. Where's that class? These are all things that you have to learn once you get into the big bad world and you're only gonna learn them if you can get around and put yourself into situations where you can really appreciate the choices and performances of people who are breakthrough stars. Like for example, I recently donated a lot of money and got an opportunity to be in the first row for a Chris Rock concert and meet Chris Rock afterwards and get a photograph with him. And I really appreciate the things that he would do with his eyes and with his lips and with his teeth and his jaw while he was performing. Very, very animated with his facial features. In the speaking game, I talk about that as being expressions expressions with your face, being an expressive performer. No one's gonna teach you that. That's something that you've gotta learn from masters of performance. And that's one of the reasons why I go to these intimate encounters with major celebrities and superstars like Donald Trump or Chris Rock or Ringo Starr is to really get to see what are these people like in person. And unfortunately, it's not in any books, which is why I wrote The Speaking Game. It's a, it's a fascinating read, and it, it's something that, that for people listening who just want to up their game, and it, it's worth your time to read it, even if you don't want to be on TV, even if you don't want to do this level of stuff. Um, there is a, there's a costume for every career that tells people you're serious, uh, and, and it's different for different careers. I, I could tell you, you know, what, what I wore as a Silicon Valley geek uh, you know, if I want to walk into a room and come across with technical credibility, there is a costume. It's different than the hot pink tie. If, if I would have worn that, it basically screams, I don't know how to code, right? But if uh, uh, but if you show up in the wrong thing, it also screams, I don't know how to code. And, and if, if you're not aware of it, you're not at least, at least paying attention when you need to look a certain way to achieve a certain result, you're probably not going to get what you want. And I think it's just so easy to uh, to sort of let that fall by the wayside and all these other things you can do. And and my intent in, in sharing this knowledge in this interview is, is that you don't have to do everything right, but just know these are variables you might want to tweak to get the results you want. And I, I think that's why Speaking Game is, is a cool book. Clint, if someone came to you tomorrow and said, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being, uh, what are the three most important pieces of advice uh, you'd offer them? What I say to people who are trying to be better speakers is the most powerful thing you can do as a speaker to 
get your message across more effectively is to speak louder. Most of the problem that people have when they're a speaker is that people can't actually hear what you're saying. If you just speak louder, that will help you to communicate way, way, way more effectively. And it has very interesting roots in the psychology that goes into speaking louder. In order to speak louder, you must be more confident of your message. And in order to be more confident of your message, you really have to think about what you're saying more. And so just the simple act of speaking louder will, will necessitate you having more confidence and being smarter in the process of communication. Does that make sense? It makes sense. <laughs> okay, the second thing that you can do if you want to be more effective in your life and especially in your communication, and I think success in your life, as Tony Robbins says, your quality of your communication determines the quality of your life. So I'm gonna really focus on communication. The second thing you can do if you want to be a better communicator and therefore live a better life is to speak faster. And again, that goes back to, you can't speak fast unless you know what you wanna say. And you can't speak fast unless you're really confident and passionate about what you wanna say. The most passionate speaker is always viewed as the best speaker. And the interesting thing about speaking fast is that, look, I don't really have to know what I want to say if I'm going to be able to speak fast. I can just speak fast. I can even speak fast. I can fast, 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 fast. It doesn't really matter. It's a skill that can be learned, actually, to speak faster. But it tricks the listener into thinking that you really know and that you have confidence and passion about what you're talking about. So speak louder, speak faster, and then it comes down to rehearsal. I think – the most important thing for any kind of performer, for any kind of business person, for any kind of marketer, for any kind of speaker is rehearsal. And what happens in rehearsal? It forces you to iterate your message. It forces your message to evolve. Marketing is just messaging. And when you are saying messages over and over and over, you will find little, little tweaks that happen to the message along the way. For example, I began this interview with a celebrity impersonation of Elvis Presley. And I said, honey, every time I go on stage, I get them butterflies. That means you're alive. Now, that Elvis Presley impersonation came out of rehearsal that I was doing for an appearance talking about getting over your fear of public speaking on NBC Phoenix a couple of years ago. And I was rehearsing, walking around in a ballroom in a circle over and over and over saying my lines that I wanted to say on TV the next day. And I, and I kept thinking, you know, I should insert a celebrity impersonation in here. How did Elvis actually sound? So I went on YouTube, I did research, I found some videos of Elvis speaking at a press conference, and I heard him say to a reporter, honey, every time I do this. And that's where I got that impersonation from. Now, is it a great Elvis impersonation? There are certainly better. But it's an effort. It's passable. And I, and I really love doing celebrity impersonations because I, I just really feel that they are pure showbiz. And it's a great way to insert extra celebrity into whatever you're talking about. But that rehearsal made me better at all of my messaging, all of my marketing. It made me a better performer. It really took my performances up to a much higher level because I had never done a celebrity impersonation on a television appearance before. And that rehearsing process makes you great. My 
teacher, Michael Port. You know Michael Port? Yep. Brilliant guy. Super smart. And he says, I, I was in his graduate speaking program. Like two years ago, I did a $20,000, $25,000 speaking training program with him. After I was, I was already making seven figures a year as a speaker. And I am constantly and in never ending improvement mode. Can I? Thank you, Tony. And I, <laughs> right? And I took his thing because I really respect him a lot. And he said, people don't want to rehearse because you suck when you rehearse. But if you don't suck when you rehearse, you will suck when you perform. Much uh, better true. to suck when you rehearse. So true words. Those, those are my three tips for being a better speaker and also getting more out of life. Clint, thanks for being on Bulletproof Radio. People can find out more about your work at clintarthur.tv. And your new book is Speaking Game. You can also get free video training at speakinggame.com. So go check out speakinggame.com. If you get the book, you'll get all kinds of free training. And I'm really looking forward to seeing anybody who's hearing this message on television and on stage getting more impact and influence in their lives and in the world. And Dave, thank you so much for everything you do and for having me on the show. You got it, my friend. If you liked today's episode, you know what to do. Head on over to bulletproof.com slash iTunes and take a minute to express some gratitude with a five-star review. Uh, believe it or not, I look at those numbers just about every day, and it really helps other people find content that's worth listening to if you just take that little bit of time to go straight to the iTunes page and just tell people it's worth your time. Thank you. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.